So glad you're here today. You can be seated. I want to welcome those of you that are joining us online as well. We're so glad that you are. So two weeks ago, we completed Second Peter, and today we are going to begin our verse-by-verse study through First John. Uh, last week, of course, was Res- Resurrection Sunday. Perfect timing, actually. The end of a book and the start of another one. So our text is going to be First John uh, chapter 1, the first three verses. I'll invite you at this time to turn there in your Bibles or go there on your devices. I guess you're supposed to say that nowadays. Uh, and once you do, if you're able, I'll ask you to stand. You can follow along as I read. If not, where you're seated is just fine. So the Apostle John, by the Holy Spirit, interesting beginning to a letter. Verse 1 writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the Word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it, and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you, verse 3, what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray, if you would, please join with me. We're in for a treat, right? Father in heaven, thank you so much. Lord, uh, thank you so much for your word. It is the word of life, the bread of life. And we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. And that's what we have before us today. Oh, Lord, satiate that hunger that we have. And satiate that thirst that we have. Lord, only You can satiate it and satisfy us, that need that You know and see in our hearts, because You see our hearts. And You know every heart in this service today. Lord, would You just, as only You can, minister to us? strengthen and encourage us, speak to us. This Word of life, You, Jesus, are the Word of life. So Lord, we want a taste of You, because we know that You are good. So Lord, will You speak? Your servants are listening. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. So what I want to talk with you about today is how the real Jesus will reveal Himself and make Himself real to us in His relationship with us. And here's why. The Apostle John begins his first letter, first of three, by the way, in a very unique way, 
so as to confront and correct a false Jesus in that day. Sadly, not only is it the same today, it's arguably worse today than it was in John's day when he penned this letter by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this is why we have letters like this in our Bibles. Letters like this from the Apostle John and the others with him, because this is, as it was, a real problem. A real problem. What's the real problem? The real problem is the real Jesus, the real Jesus was being replaced by a different Jesus, who in addition to being in the place of the real Jesus is, as it was, against the real Jesus. I guess this is as good of a time as any just to mention, maybe parenthetically, that uh, there are several Jesuses. There are different Jesuses. But there's only one Jesus of the Bible. And He's the real Jesus. And the real Jesus wants to reveal Himself to us as such, because He desires a relationship with us. And that's what the beginning of this letter is all about. If you'll kindly allow me to, I'd like to provide you with a backstory of sorts specific to this powerful and important letter. First, it's believed that John is now a very old man, though there is some debate amongst Bible teachers as to what his actual age was. Now we know that the revelation was given to John to write in approximately the year 95 AD. Now this will be germane to our understanding, and that's why I'm going into it. The Apostle John is believed to be at the very minimum in his 90s, in his 90s. And it's important to note that this is John the disciple, and John the author of the gospel, and John the author of these three letters. And that's not all. <laughs> Subsequently, this is the John that's the author of the book of Revelation. Same guy. Oh, he's uh, older now than he was back then. But this is why this is important. John was the last living disciple of Jesus, who personally knew Jesus. This is why John was inspired by the Holy Spirit to address this serious matter. And it's a serious matter by virtue of the fact that he had both the authority and 
the eyewitness experience, and as such earned the right to speak concerning this serious matter. What's the serious matter? The serious matter is concerning the Jesus of Gnosticism. We'll talk about Gnosticism, just hang on. But Gnosticism, by the way, (laughs) is met with naivete, and it's alive and well today. And let me explain. The Gnostics, or enlightened ones, the ascended masters, gnosis, knowledge. Gnostic, the the knowledged ones, the enlightened ones. This is what they taught then, which is why John is hitting this head on. And it will come into play with what's happening today, if you'll hang on. That was pretty good, actually, wasn't it? Practiced that all week, so. So who were these Gnostics and what were they teaching? Because clearly the Jesus of Gnosticism is not the Jesus of the Bible. This is not the real Jesus. This is a very different Jesus. (laughs) So this Jesus of Gnosticism to the Gnostic wasn't real physically. He was an apparition spiritually. Again, just hang on. Now, Gnosticism is multifaceted. That's almost an understatement. But this aspect of Gnosticism separated the body from the spirit in order that one could sin in their bodies with impunity. Do you see how that works? So if Jesus did not have a real physical body, then the sins that we commit with our bodies, well, they're evil. And the Jesus of Gnosticism, having no real physical body, would in effect give them license to argue that everything material was evil. So anything they did with their physical bodies was allowed because there was now no responsibility under the banner of the body just being evil. Now this is going to come into focus in a moment. It's for this reason that John begins his letter this way, such that Jesus was real physically And John knew Jesus personally. Notice the wording inspired by the Holy Spirit. No, we studied Him. We touched Him. We knew Him. We saw Him. He's real. Now, to the question of how Gnosticism is alive and well today, one need look no further than to, of all places, the movies and TV programs coming out of Hollywood. Um, What follows is a simple but brief explanation of 
this particular facet of Gnosticism. And as I read it, listen carefully to Hollywood in it. To explain it as simply as I can, I'm going to refer to encyclopedia.com and their definition of Gnosticism. Um, I do so because I think it will be helpful to you, beneficial to you in understanding the why behind the what of this epistle in 1 John. So here we go. You ready? Okay. Gnosticism is a satanic teaching that creation was a cover-up, a conspiracy if you prefer, created by a lesser divinity, and that Christ was an emissary who redeemed Himself so others could redeem themselves. Did you catch that? Think again, ascended masters. For those of you, and I would really encourage you to do your own research on this. Uh, pray first. <laughs> it's really quite intense. But what you'll find is this. There's these ascended masters of which Jesus is just one, who basically redeemed themselves and ascended as these ascended masters, and now are the enlightened ones. People in the world now, according to Gnosticism, have to be freed and liberated from the physical matter in the material world, also known as the matrix. Oh, I got you there. I knew I would. So you know the matrix, right? You hear that a lot, especially lately. The matrix is, is this creation by an evil architect and master, an aeon named Sophia, created this evil divine being apart from her male consort and hid him outside the divine realm. Do you know what Sophia names him? Yaldabaoth, or Yahweh. I said Yahweh. And he was the God of the Old Testament who used his power to create the evil world. This is Gnosticism. However, according to Gnosticism, Yahweh in his ignorance foolishly declares, I am God, and there is no other God beside me, which is verbatim the verse in Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 6. He then decides to make human beings in His image. Thus, Adam is created with, watch this, the divinity of Sophia making him a God. So, he casts human beings into the evil realm of the physical world of matter. And the only way they can return is to know, gnosis, the secret mystery. So what's Sophia, apparently, going to do? Because after all, Gnosticism says Sophia created Yahweh. 
No way. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so here's what Gnosticism says. Sophia sends the serpent to reveal to Adam that he is God, and that the evil creator architect Yahweh is keeping him enslaved in the matrix. Or how about this? The prison planet. Stay with me. So now you've got this evil material world that this evil Yahweh created. And Sophia needs to send the serpent to let them know the tree of the knowledge, gnosis of good and evil, so they can free themselves from this prison planet, this matrix that Yahweh created. This is why, by the way, I'm going to help you out, because you know, I, I love it when I get the answers to the test questions, so I'm going to give you the answers to the questions. The question of seeing Hollywood in this. I'm going to bring up two movies. I rarely do this, but I, I have to make an exception for what I think would be deemed obvious reasons, and I think you'll see why. Two movies. The first one, of course, The Matrix. Keanu Reeves. Um, I guess there's sequel. I've never seen those movies, by the way. I'm just because I'm so spiritual and so holy. And <laughs> Not really. I mean, I'm not really. Anyway, isn't there like a Matrix 35 now, or like, like the Rocky movies, I think, right? They still call them that? Anyway, you know what the whole gist of the Matrix is? It's Gnosticism at its, I hate to use the word finest, but for lack of a better word, because you have this character, Keanu Reeves, that is trapped in this Matrix, and he has to get out. And by the way, I'm sorry to say that Christians who use the verbiage red pill, blue pill, they're referring to this, stop. No, I'm serious, stop. Red pill, blue pill, because he's given Keanu Reeves this choice. And if he takes the red pill or the blue pill, but the sole goal is to save himself out of this matrix. So he becomes now his own savior. And once he ascends and saves himself from this evil matrix of this material world, now he can be also a savior for others to be their own savior and God. Did you connect those dots? Second movie. This one was a weird movie, and I have to confess, I watched it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but God is a forgiving God. So you're just with bated breath on the edge of your seat. What's the movie? The Truman Show. Oh, Jim Carrey. Remember? Well, it's an older movie, but okay. Same exact thing. You have this evil architect, literally. He, he was the designer, the architect for this trapped from birth world slash matrix. And 
Jim Carrey has to get out of it. He has to become his own savior, like Keanu Reeves. It's the same script, different movie. So the evil architect. Now I have to again confess that when I'm watching this, I really hated that guy. Because come on, we're rooting for Jim Carrey. I'm sorry, Truman, whatever his name was. You know, go Truman, go. You know, everybody, I don't want to take this too far. You're going to have flashbacks and I won't get you back. But (laughs) do you get the point here? The whole point of it is that architect is Yahweh and he's evil. And, And we need to send the serpent into the garden so that the eyes of Adam and Eve will be open to the knowledge, gnosis. See, it's a, let me, let me try this, just bear with me. It's the same lie. All these generations later, the only difference between the lie in the garden and the lie today is it's been completely repackaged. It's got all new wrapping paper from Hollywood all over it, and they're repackaging it. So it's more palatable, plausible, acceptable. Because the reality is, is that God is evil. And we need to get out of this matrix that God, this evil God created. So we need to save ourselves. We become our own savior. And then if we're our own savior, we then become our own God. Does that sound familiar to you? See, God, Adam, Eve, does not want you to eat of this tree because He knows that the day that you do, your eyes will be open and you will be as God. Same lie. Well, there are other movies. I don't want to ruin your afternoon. Of course, I already did. So anyway, have a nice afternoon. Now, let's take it just one step further, if you don't mind. So these characters that are trapped in Yahweh's matrix or prison planet, Alex Jones, by the way, right? When I say that, prison planet, Alex Jones. Be very careful with that guy. No, I'm serious. Be very careful with that guy. It's Gnosticism incarnate. Because you see, we've all been imprisoned here on this planet, in this matrix. So we need, watch, a great awakening. So again, we can free ourselves from this evil matrix, this prison planet. So do you realize that the sole goal of this is to make God evil and dark, and Satan good and light? By the way, (laughs) evil, E-V-I-L, live, L-I-V-E backwards. 
It's the reverse. And that's what Gnosticism is. It's the reverse. And it is evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's reverse. So now Satan is Creator God and Yahweh evil. Satan good, God bad. And please, 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 I implore you, never fall for the lie that Satan is the opposite of God. He is not. Satan is a created being. I heard one say, and has stuck with me for many years, is that the devil is God's devil. Now before you shriek in horror at that (laughs) and stone me to death, I can tell by the way you're looking at me that you're thinking about that. Think about this. He's a created being. God created the devil knowing what the devil would do, and He still created him. So the devil can do nothing unless God allows him. And God will never allow the devil to do anything unless it's ultimately in the end for His glory and our good. Think about when, I think about two guys, can't wait to meet them, Job and Peter. Thing in common they had? Well, uh, Satan had to ask for permission before he could even touch Job. And God's like, go ahead, go ahead. But uh, only to this point. And the whole thing was, of course, he's righteous and upright and loves you. Look at how you bless him. You let me have Adam, and I, he'll curse you to your face. Now, God already knows he's not going to curse me. So he says, okay, deal. So he sends him down there. And, but he had to get permission to do that to Job. And God will never allow the devil to do anything to the Job's and the Peter's. Peter, remember that account? Oh, if I'm Peter, I always try to put myself in the, in the account. It's very healthy to do. Most of the time, sometimes it's a little bit freaky, but you put yourself in the account. I'm there, and I'm hearing this dialogue between Jesus and Peter. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, um, Satan has asked for permission to sift you as wheat. Now I'm, I'm over here going, <gasps> and if I'm Peter, I'm going, you told him no, right, Lord? <laughs> no, I actually gave him permission. I'm going to allow him. Why? Because in the end, I'm going to use this for your good and the good of others. And it's also going to be for my glory. But see, Gnosticism has flipped that on its head. Now we have Satan, which by the way, Lucifer's light bearer. He appears as an angel of light. So Satan is now good and God is evil. One more thing on this, and we'll, we're actually going to get to the text. I know it doesn't seem like it, but we will. I do have to say this, and uh, please hear me out on this. Um, it has to do with the Marvel franchise. Uh, I took some time, I've been taking actually quite a bit of time educating myself on uh, Marvel. Now, when I say Marvel, these are the, the back in our day, back, uh, well, wow, as your age, they were comic books. <laughs> They ain't no comic books anymore. These are full on, full blown 
movies with all the effects from the pit of hell. Pastor, what what is going on with you? (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you what's going on with me. These Marvel characters, they're the saviors. They're the superheroes. And isn't it interesting that they go up against this Creator? You know who that is? That's Yahweh. And they have to free themselves from this evil Creator. There is documentation. And if you do your research, listen, if I can do it, you can do it. If you do your research, you will find documentation, video, from the producers of these movies admitting that they use the Bible as a template to cast these characters in these movies. And you watch a movie like that, you say, well, it's okay, I can still watch it. Ah, All things are lawful. I wouldn't. Be very careful, because see, the, the subconscious, and especially over an elongated and prolonged period of time, it will get to you. You know, you might start off and go, okay, I'm going to watch it. All right. Because I, I, I know. I'm not going not to, I'm, I'm on to it, so it's not going to affect me. And before you know it, you're, you're watching all right, like this. <laughs> and then all of a sudden now, when you go to read your Bible, you're going, hmm because now you're confused. And who's the author of confusion? I mean, by the way, last thing on this. um, Did you know that the Marvel franchise, the movie franchise, is the largest grossing movie film franchise of all time? Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. And you peel back all the layers of effects and all the Hollywood, and man, they've got a budget and they spare no expense. And there's a satanic force behind it, by the way. I I hate to say it this way, but for lack of a better way of saying it, it's ordained demonically. Just like we have the ordination and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, these are demonic spirits, evil spirits. And you're opening yourself up to that. You might fancy yourself as being a very strong Christian, but uh, we're to have nothing to do, Ephesians 5.11, with the deeds of darkness. And when it comes to Gnosticism, it is so subtle, (laughs) effects at it. But, and you're going to know this, please be discerning. It's not just Marvel, it's all of the, all of the above. I mean, the movies, by the way, I haven't seen, you know, any of these. I'm, I'm make, make sure I'm being honest here. <laughs> Have I? No, I haven't, uh, that I can recall. I mean, I watch documentaries sometimes, and, but um, Would you agree with me that the movies today are more satanic than they've ever been? This is why. This is why. 
okay, I feel better. I know you feel horrible, but I feel better. So enter the text that's before us today, finally, where the Apostle John speaks to the real Jesus, and in so doing debunks the Gnostic Jesus, the different Jesus. Keep in mind, and this is important, that this is the real Jesus that made Himself real to John. Do you remember that John was one of the sons of thunder? You remember? I do too. Because I remember the accounts recorded in the Gospels where John is one of the sons of thunder with his brother who goes to Jesus and basically says, let's torch him. Jesus is like, you don't know what spirit you're of. <laughs> That's not me. That's not what I came for. Wait a minute. That's the same guy that wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Gospel of John? Yeah. It's the same guy that wrote the epistles, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John? Yeah. It's the same John that was given the revelation, the last book in the Bible, the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing to those who read it and hear it and take it hard. That John? Yeah. Wow. How did he go from being one of the sons of thunder to the disciple of love. No. No, in the Gospels. John's Gospel, but the Gospels nonetheless. He always makes sure to point out to the reader concerning himself that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. Yeah. And he's also the one in his gospel that he includes Peter, but it's always like this. And Peter. Yeah. No, count. You do this. Do a word search. You've got the software to do it now. Uh, count how many times you're going to read, and Peter. And Peter. It's kind of like, and Peter. You know, the disciples, and Peter. It's kind of like, welcome, gentlemen, and JD. Wow. I'm not a gentleman. <laughs> yeah, and JD. So, but he was the one, listen, all the disciples were the disciples that Jesus loved. But here's my point. Jesus was so real to John, because this real Jesus revealed Himself to John so much so, that this is not the John that's the son of thunder. This is the John that is the disciple of love, as he's affectionately referred to. That's real. Jesus is real. Okay, what follows are three very real. I'm going to keep using that word real, because it's very real. And not just real, but personal truths concerning Jesus revealing Himself to us in His loving desire to have a real relationship with us, with the real Jesus. They are in order. Verse 1, God became a man for you, 
Verse 2, God gave eternal life to you. And verse 3, God wants fellowship with you. Let's start with the first one in verse 1. Here, John again makes it very clear that that which was from the beginning, we're talking Genesis 1-1, was heard, seen, studied, and even touched. So much so that Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, was the fulfillment of the Word of life in the person of Jesus the Christ. Replete throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to look at a couple verses, very powerful. We see that in the beginning and from the beginning, Jesus was the Word of life and is the Word of life. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. The Son of God is God the Son. And this is John 1, 1. And so you know, I think you might, this is such a powerful verse <laughs> that the cults like the Jehovah Witnesses had to rewrite it. No, I'm serious. I had an encounter many, many years ago when I was doing Bible studies, this is before I was in the ministry, and I did these um, Bible studies for uh, business people from all walks of life. And, and uh, I just went verse by verse through the Bible. And I came to John 1, verse 1. And wouldn't you know it, one of the guys in the Bible study invited his Jehovah Witness friend. Yeah, that's what I said. And he came. And he's sitting in the back row. I mean the body language. I'm not going to look at anybody, because you might be, I'll just look down. But you know, the body language kind of like, okay, we're doing this. And I, could, I spotted him and I saw him in the back. I thought, uh-oh, okay, Lord, <laughs> you got this, right? Yeah. So man, I hit it. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So far, so good for the J-dub in the back. But this part, and the Word was God. Woo! The sparks flew. And you know, being the gracious, humble, meek, bashful, shy guy that I am, I'm going to leave that one right there, because you had way too much fun with it. So Jesus is God. No, He's not, says the Jehovah Witness. No, He's not, says the Mormon. How many of us have had dialogues with Mormons? Oh, they'll go as far down that road with you as you want. Jesus is Savior. Yes. Jesus is Lord. Yes. Jesus is Redeemer. Yes. Jesus is God. No. Okay. That's the end of this conversation, because Jesus is God. So now we have the Word that was with God, and now the Word was God and is God. 
In other words, Jesus is the Word. And watch verse 14, John 1. I love this so much. We've talked much about this in our study, specifically concerning the tabernacle in the book of Exodus and the type, the foreshadow, the picture that it paints. Everything points to the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to John 1.14. And the Word, Jesus, became flesh, became a man. And this is a better word translated, tabernacled amongst us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Translated, God became a man. His name, Jesus. He tabernacled. He became flesh, flesh and blood, bodies like ours. Still fully God, but fully man to dwell among us. Emmanuel, God with us. You can have some fun with that. Be gracious, not militant like I always am. But next time you're in a conversation, just, you know, with somebody and they're just hitting you hard with, you know, Jesus isn't God. Just say, you know, um, here's a passage I'm sure you're familiar with in Isaiah, where he is called Emmanuel. Do you know what Emmanuel means? Thank you. So I don't know. I'm pretty sure he's God with us. Jesus, God with us. Emmanuel. So Merry Christmas. And then move on. And then shake the, never mind. Okay. This brings us to verse 2. How are we doing? Good? Okay. Verse 2, John explains that God became a man for you to give eternal life to you. And yet again, John authenticates his God-given authority to testify and proclaim as an eyewitness that Jesus appeared as, listen, the life, the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father was through Him. Oh, you Christians are so narrow-minded. I know. Well, narrow is the gate, and few thereof that go through. But the wide gate, ho! Hey, you've seen or heard those advertising campaigns. They're actually brilliant, Uh, not in a good way, but (laughs) for purpose of my illustration. uh, They they go something like this, 50,000 people can't be wrong. Oh, yes, they can. You know, the whole point of that advertising campaign is that, hey, these guys are doing it. They must be good. Actually, if that many people are doing it, it probably isn't good. Because wide is the gate, 
and many go thereof. So, I mean, you're just following the crowd. And that's not necessary. In fact, uh, this, uh, you poor people, I'm just going to not do it. I'm going to spare you. Yeah. Okay, real quick. <laughs> You've heard that expression, illustration about a fish swimming upstream? Any fish can just swim downstream. There, that was my, that was good. That was okay, right? So yeah. But when you're just going with the flow, go along to get along, hey, everybody's doing it. Well, there is a way, sir, ma'am, that seems right. But the end thereof is the way of death. So here's the narrow road. Uh, you're swimming upstream. You're going against the world now. Don't be surprised, especially if you're a new believer. All of a sudden now, your friends don't want to be your friends. I mean, for me, it was so many years ago, I, I don't really remember. But I remember when I got saved, they, they wanted nothing to do with me. Of course, I didn't help either. I'm just beating them over the head with the Bible. And Jesus is real. Jesus is really real. That was my whole theology. I hadn't, I'm, a, I'm a brand new babe in Christ. Jesus is real. Jesus is really real. He's real. Did I say Jesus was real? You need Jesus. He's real. And that was it. And they said, get away from me. Anyway, it, it was a gift. And God's gifts are without repentance, His gifts and calling. So I guess I'm still stuck with it. But anyway, you see where I'm going with this? I mean, Jesus is God incarnate, and He became a man. Why? To redeem man. And that's our third one. Jesus wants to have fellowship with you. He became a man for you to give eternal life to you so He could have fellowship with you. Now this word for fellowship in the original Greek language of the New Testament is a word I'm sure you've probably heard of before. It's the Greek word koinonia. Now let's not be too quick to dismiss this word. This is a packed full word. So it doesn't just mean fellowship. It, it has a very deep meaning. Listen to the meaning of the word koinonia. It means communion, common union, one. Community, partnership, friendship, participation, association, sharing, and intimacy. Wow, that's all wrapped up and packaged in that one word. Oh yeah, and more. I just read off a list, but it's not exhaustive. It's, I see the word koinonia like I see the word grace, undefinable by its very nature. Try defining grace. Oh, it's unmerited favor. You haven't even, that's not even close. I mean, you, you just scratched a little itty bitty surface. Grace? Try to define grace. It's undefinable. Is undefinable a word? Let's just say that it is. 
Same thing with koinonia. Now, why am I emphasizing this? Because that's what God wants with us. That's why God became a man for us. That's why God gave eternal life to us. He wants this koinonia with us. He wants us to be one with Him, united with Him. You know the real Lord's Prayer, John 17? You know which one I'm talking about? When Jesus prays to the Father in the garden, knowing He's about to go to the cross, so intense was the Lord's Prayer that He perspired His own blood. Now what we affectionately refer to as the Lord's Prayer is not really the Lord's Prayer. It's our prayer that the Lord taught us to pray our Father which art in heaven. And here's why you can know with a certainty that that's not the Lord's Prayer. Because in that prayer He teaches us to pray, forgive us of our trespasses, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. He was without trespassing, without sin. He could never have prayed that. That's not His prayer. That's our prayer. His prayer. He prays so powerfully, obviously, passionately. He's perspiring His own blood. If you go into the physiology of that, uh, you have to be under such intense stress and distress before the forehead, which is very vascular, will actually bleed. That's intense. And that was the kind of prayer that he prayed. And in that intensity of that prayer, he prayed, make them one, Father, as we are one. Koinonia. That's his desire. He wants us to have that intimacy with the Father. And this is what John writes. We want you to have this with us, and what we have is with the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. Wait, you mean to tell me that God wants to have a relationship with me, fellowship with me, a friendship with me? Where's the fear of God? That's irreverent. Oh, really? Can I just humbly remind you of something that has really changed my prayer life? I always know that something was a good decision when my only regret is that I didn't do it sooner, and such is the case with this. So a number of years ago, I, I was just, um, well, we just finished it, Second Peter where Peter, by the Holy Spirit, says, you know, our, our spirit bears witness with his spirit that we're children of God, and we can call him Abba, Aramaic, Hebrew, Baba, Arabic, Chinese, by the way, Baba. Come on, aren't there any, can I get a witness here? It's not just the Arabs, you know. They refer to the Father as Baba. Baba, Abba, Papa, Daddy. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that Jesus came to give me that kind of a relationship with the Father, that I could call Him Daddy? 
so here's what I did, and I wish I would have done it sooner. It just revolutionized and transformed my prayer life. And it brought my loving Heavenly Father infinitely and intimately closer in ways that I had never known. I started calling Him in my Arabic tongue, Baba. And it changed the whole complexion of my prayer and my relationship with Him. Because see, I'm a Baba too. <laughs> real quick, funny story, just real quick, why not? Um, I'm in Russia, and I'm teaching and speaking at a, a church there on a Sunday morning, and I have to have a translator. So that alone was a challenge, because I had to shorten my message in half in order to give the translator enough time to translate my message. So that took some getting used to. Never done that before. Well, here I am. And I'm, I'm using the illustration of my two boys who were very young at the time, and how they call me Baba. And the translator didn't translate right away. He just looks over at me like, and I'm like, what did I say? So he tries. They heard, all they heard was Baba. And they started laughing. Not with me, at me. I was like, so after the, after the message, I asked the translator, I said, what was the deal with Baba? I said, oh, pastor, 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 pastor. In Russian, Baba means bag lady. <laughs> you know, here I am trying to share the intimacy that I have with my heavenly father, and they're thinking bag lady, and I lost him. I never got him back after that. Oh, well. Do you have a point, Pastor? Yes, I do have a point. I'm a Baba too. I have uh, my children that call me Baba. And I just melt when they do, because I love them so much. But here's the thing, I could never love them as much as my Heavenly Father loves them. Do you realize that? especially those of you that have prodigal sons or wayward daughters. You need, maybe this is a word for you, God loves them more than you ever could. You're a fallen parent. And yeah, you know how to give good gifts when your children ask, but how much more your Heavenly Father? His love is infinite. It's perfect. And He wants that relationship with us as our Daddy in Heaven. I would just encourage you. It might be awkward. I know for me at first it was so weird. I'm like, um, Baba, I'm like, oh, I was waiting for a lightning bolt to strike me. You know, where's the fear of the Lord? And how irreverent. And you're supposed to pray, our Father which art in heaven. <laughs> Here you are, Baba, Baba. Well, it didn't take long until I started realizing how much it was changing me and my relationship with Him because of the person of Jesus Christ. God wants that with you. He loves you so much. He likes you. I mean, He likes you too. He's not angry at you. Call him Daddy. Call him Baba. Call him Papa. Don't call him Bag Lady, whatever you do. <laughs> but call him by that affectionate 
term and watch what will happen. It will change everything. And you'll never look back. Now all of a sudden you have... And one last thing and I'll close. Um, we do err greatly. And this was a struggle for me because I didn't have a very good relationship with my earthly father. We do err greatly when we view our heavenly father through the lens of our earthly father. And I think the enemy exploits that in our lives because he doesn't want that intimacy with our heavenly father. So we tend to see our heavenly father through that lens. We view him through that lens and it mars our relationship. And I think it breaks the heart of God who longs to have this intimate koinonia with us. And, and, and when we when we talk, because that's all prayer is, and we've so complicated prayer, haven't we? I mean, prayer is just talking to your daddy. Baba, just go to him and bring everything to him and cast all of your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and come unto me, all you that are heavy, heavy laden weary, and I'll, I'll give you rest for your soul. Just come. I'm your Baba, I'm your Papa, I'm your Father, I'm your Daddy. You can come to me anytime about anything. I love you so much. I hope that today there will be a move of the Holy Spirit on your heart as it relates to your relationship with your Heavenly Father. Why don't you go ahead and stand up, Capono, come on up. <laughs> Baba, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Baba. <sighs> Lord, it's now the Holy Spirit is going to take what we've seen here today and do that which only you can in our lives. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you that you are the word, the word of life. Lord, I just would ask, and especially for anyone here that might be really struggling and you, in that still small voice of the Holy Spirit, have spoken ever so gently into the heart. Lord, I pray that the change would happen now, right here, right now, in this place, at this time. That the relationship that all of us, myself included, have with you as our Heavenly Father will change. Lord, we, we love you, but you first loved us in that while we were still sinners, you sent Jesus to die for us, to reconcile us to you, that relationship with you. So Lord, thank you that we can have that. I pray now that we would avail ourselves of that. In Jesus' name, amen.